learn deal to deal and <laughs> I don't do the business development anymore. So every time I get that buzz, I'm just like, yeah, it's a deal. We love a deal. We're going to have to pitch and all that kind of stuff. It's very sad, but it is. I, it's funny because I journal quite a lot. I journal every day and then I reflect back on like, what is it that makes me particularly happy? And one of the things that I kept seeing again and again is I love a, I love a pitch. I love having to go out and put ourselves out there. And it's something that you, on the face of it, would think like, why on earth would anyone like that? Why on earth would anyone like presenting and putting themselves out there? But when you reflect back on the journey and say, oh my God, it turns out that's always the highlight of my day if we win a deal or something like that. So I don't know if that was helpful, Jess, but that's that's some of the, the aspects of my role anyway. Welcome to the Jess Selection Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, I've got Ramon Segal. Ramon, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Jess. Thank you for having me on your, on your show. Yeah, you bet. By the way, I didn't ask. Where where in the northern part of the UK are you? So I am in Newcastle, which is on the northeast coast. So we're about 40 miles from Scotland. So it's a very grey, rainy day in this part of the world, which is <laughs> for your listeners in the US is probably the stereotypical day of what they imagine the British summertime <laughs> to be like. Sure. Well, I know you've done a few different things, but why don't you talk to us about remarketing to begin with? Sure. Yeah. So remarketing was a company that I founded about 13 years ago, actually this this month, 13 years ago. So what started as a, a kind of side gig in a in an apartment not too far from, from where I am kind of ended up becoming a, a kind of a, a global agency that specializes in the life science space. So we're, a, we're predominantly digital marketing content and you know, all that kind of stuff, which is probably less exciting. I suppose the interesting thing about our business is the vertical that we focus. So you know, a lot of companies will think, all right, they must work on drug products and hospitals and doctors and all that type of stuff. But actually the work we do is in the supply chain of life sciences. So if you take a COVID vaccine, for example, that would have been developed, researched, tested, manufactured, packaged, shipped by multiple vendors in the supply chain. Those vendors are our types of... So these clients in, in life sciences, supply chain, what's an example of what you're doing for them? Sure. So today's actually a good example. So there's a, a global pharma services business that we work with that effectively helps pharmaceutical and biotech clients develop new drug products and then commercialize them and take them to market. So they've been a client for us for many years. They were merged with another business of equal size. So it's a $2 billion client. And our job was to navigate them through a rebrand process. And, you know, that involved say, taking, you know, the opinions of stakeholders, customers, looking at the competitor set and all that type of stuff. And obviously you're navigating quite a lot in terms of opinion and baggage and all that type of stuff, because people are coming at it from different perspectives. And I'm proud to say, you know, over the you know, best part of six months or so, we kind of worked with that client, navigated them through. We were involved in actually naming the brand and and then helping with the messaging identity. We built the website in actually a matter of weeks, which was a crazy kind of sprint to get that done. And the global launch was today, which is on LinkedIn. It's like 10,000 employees across the, the world that are all very excited today. So that's it. That's an example of the project, which kind of goes from kind of guiding a client through who they are and how they want to present themselves to the world and then taking it all the way through to kind of implementation and tactical stuff, which I'm sure your listeners will be aware of. Yeah. So I'm I'm interested, is their client primarily the B2B or is there any customer consumer face? Yeah, exactly. Exactly right, Jess. Actually, so they, they are typically targeting companies that are developing new drug products. So that could be a big pharma company. It could be a biotech company. It could be even a platform technology company. So they typically support companies that are actually developing new, new, new products. Yeah. So I'm interested 
I'm always interested in new client acquisition, you know, whether it's marketing, whether it's sales, whatever. When you, when you are marketing your marketing services in that B2B space, what, what are some of the secrets that you found or what, what's been effective for you over the years? Love this question, by the Besides word of mouth. I know that. Okay. What I know that's good. And so first and foremost, I would say we invest in our marketing. So one of the things I see agencies really struggle with is they tell their clients kind of how to do things and they don't do it themselves. It's like, you know, it's like a hairdresser with a horrific haircut, right? It's that type of <laughs> example for us. So we have a few things. So we, so we have four people, you know, we're, we're a company of about 60, 65 people and we have four or five people that work in our marketing team. So first and foremost, as a business, we invest in the resource. We also have an outsourced PR company and freelance designers that, that, that we use in terms of kind of where our leads come from. So you know, in addition to, I suppose, the word amount stuff. So we got a lot of inbound kind of leads that come through our website. So all of our channel strategies, whether it be LinkedIn advertising, whether it be email marketing, whether it be SEO, PPC, any kind of sponsorship that we do, it all funnels through to our website. And so we do quite a lot in terms of data capture where we put really good quality content on the website. So we often see companies download something one day, download something a few weeks later, and then end up uh, kind of end up sending an inquiry of some description through the website and the other thing that we find i mean there's still a little bit of actually in in our industry because the pharmaceutical sector is quite conservative so trade events and conferences still play a a crazy active role you you can see the b2b industries very often so making sure we've got a presence where you know when meeting companies we often do client events part of my job now is obviously as the founder is to be out and about as a bit of a figurehead for the organization so i'm often doing speaking gigs at these events and people will come up and say hey i saw that you talked about x y and z and, and again for your listeners who you know i've listened to your show many times so i know you know people that are entrepreneurs or owners or ceos you know your strategic network is key so one of my jobs for example is I spend a lot of time building relationships with say, private equity companies, investment companies, bankers who are involved in the kind of growth strategies behind our clients. So what tends to happen is when, say, a client or a potential client is purchased, they're like, oh, you know, <laughs> one of the things is that we need to sort our marketing out, but we need a specialist that knows the sector, that knows the language, that knows the regulations. And the, the net effect, if you like, of those relationships are the inquiry or a, or a recommendation comes in. So in a sense, it's word of mouth, but it's, I would say, proactively kind of managed word of mouth. So it doesn't happen by accident often, which I think people think that word of mouth has to be this accidental thing. You can do some good stuff to help stimulate word of mouth. So that's been a, a good ta- you know, good good technique for us as well. I could keep, I could keep talking about marketing. That's fine if you want me to. <laughs> well, yeah, no, you know, I, I, wanted, I actually want to talk about what you're doing, being the figurehead and getting the word out. And, you know, so even though like, I don't know, 90 something, percent of my time is spent on our commercial real estate fund we're doing these like tiny house adventure cabins near ski resorts and surfing beaches and stuff right to put on airbnb and it's basically like i'm just trying to invent like the pro athlete backyard i always wanted as a kid (laughs) right i'm trying to make that so that all my grown-up action sports friends can can go rent it with their kids and like have our like you know our dreams i need to be your friend uh, to befriend you because i'm i'm the type of guy you want to take on these types of activities (laughs) yeah yeah so so we're gonna like so but the main thing we're doing there is we're just going to make videos of us building the new jump and then like hitting it you know bring the friends in try and bring some pro athletes and bring their kids to just like show families setting down their phone and actually connecting with each other and having fun in nature right and it's basically like just taking on my 14 year 
your boy dreams and turning a business <laughs> out of it. Right? But but lucky for us, it it makes a really high rate of return. So that's great, right? But so I but you know, I own a couple other companies and one of them is this media company that produces this show for me, right? And we make videos for one of the largest media companies in the world and then stick their logo on it, right? And then we we but kind of like the main service we offer, like I don't know exactly what to call it. So we're just calling it credibility marketing. And it's like investment fund CEOs or these these folks in the uh, energy sector in, in media that we're helping with, right? And it's like, how can we help them become a high visibility expert in their space? Like there's all these other great firms, like I don't know if you've ever heard of Hinge Marketing, but they specialize in only helping professionals become like a high visibility expert. And they like, they do, they, I don't know, they survey like a thousand or 1500 firms a year and say, who's growing fast? What tactics do these not? And like over and over, it's like people doing exactly what you're doing of the write a book, speak, things like this, and, and basically have a reputation that, to bring that work in. So I, I'm interested because I want to talk about your book next, but when you think about your job of get the word out, try to make relationships, try to be profiling, it makes me think of Richard Branson who says like a chairman's job is to get free ink. You know, get the newspaper right about the ring. So what did this, like, how do you decide what you're going to do or not do when it comes to speaking? You know, you're obviously not in the office at the business, right? So how do you decide what you're going to do or not do? It's a great juncture to ask me that question because about two months ago, we received a private equity investment in, in the business and what that what that has meant is my role has slightly evolved because we have an investor sat around the table and we have, we already had a CEO in the business. So I'm not operationally running this business day to day. I moved to the U.S. a few years ago to set up our U.S. into Boston to set up our uh, U.S. entity, and then came back a few years later. But what that allowed us to do was actually hire a CEO to run the operational piece. So I think that's one of the key things. Is I think a lot of founders get the struggle to get out of the day to day of doing stuff. And one of the key pivot points for us as an organization was that a high-end CEO that runs the, all, the, all the crap that comes with the day-to-day of running a business, right? And that also includes finance, HR, people, and all that, you know, all that stuff. And so that very fundamentally frees me up to do other stuff. And at times, I feel a bit guilty because it almost feels like, oh my God, this doesn't feel like real work, <laughs> you know? But what, going back to your question, you know, my role now is very clearly defined as, you know, 80% of my role is geographic expansion. So where are we going to take our business next? Where do our clients need us to be? Where do we set up? What does that look like? So I'm currently looking at a few locations in the world, which is exciting and it gets the team excited. Like, where are we going to go next? But also, as you know, at the minute, talent's a huge challenge for a lot of companies and especially in the agency world, especially when our, you know, we are a niche within a niche within a niche within a niche to find talent is. So working out where we can build a talent hub is, is really important. The next one is some of the stuff like you said there, which is be that external figurehead and be out and about. And that could be, you know, be, be, you know do podcasts like this where I'm speaking to you. You know, I wrote a book. We have our own podcast called Molecule to Market, which is an incredibly niche focused podcast, which is very much focused on the the kind of area that we focus on. So it's so random to everyone else in the world, but that's that's the point. Like we don't want millions of listeners. That's not what we're looking for. But again, you know, positions me as I don't want to say thought leader because I'm actually often facilitating the conversation, but it shows that I'm having the C level discussions and putting good content in the world. I also kind of write lots of blogs and content and all that kind of stuff, as you can imagine. And then you add the speaking gigs. And when you add it all up, it actually, you realize it takes 
it's quite a lot of it's quite a lot of time than it takes to actually produce all of all of this. And the other component for my role is actually around innovation and you know what's the market doing and what services might we need to add in eighteen months' time or in twelve months' time. So I use the phrase looking around the corner, like what is coming around the corner that if we can get a head start now. And what I would say is it's very I mean you'll you'll know Jess, it's incredibly cons- consuming running your own business and you know being that figurehead. So finding the headspace to do that actually unlocks quite a lot of creativity and that it becomes less about the amount of hours that you do, but the value that you add in terms of ideas and, and that type of thing. So I'm very early into that journey in terms of my, my new role. And then there's you know, 20-30% is still playing a role on key clients. And that's not being at the end of the phone every day, but you know, we have some really key clients that I need to be available for the help from a, not from a day-to-day servicing perspective, but add value in terms of what else we can do on those clients as well. And I still love that stuff. I still get excited. I mean, we got a call from a client today that said, you know, there's a global pitch that's happening and you guys are the lead agency. And I'm, I'm like a kid in a sweet shop. It's like, I still get excited for stuff like that. And I don't know what it is about a deal, which just doesn't matter how big or small the deal is, the deal's a deal. And <laughs> I don't do the business development anymore. So every time I get that buzz, I'm just like, yeah, it's a deal. We love a deal. We're going to have to pitch and all that kind of stuff. It's very sad, but it is. I, it's funny because I journal quite a lot. I journal every day and then I reflect back on like, what is it that makes me particularly happy? And one of the things that I kept seeing again and again is, I love a, I love a pitch. I love having to go out and put ourselves out there. And it's something that you, on the face of it, would think like, why on earth would anyone like that? Why on earth would anyone like present and then put themselves out there? But when you reflect back on the journey and say, oh my God, it turns out that's always the highlight of my day if we win a deal or something like that. So I don't know if that was helpful, Jess, but that's that's some of the, the aspects of my role anyway as it is today. Are you kidding? I think, I think it's like a... For people with a certain personality who are very often the ones that become entrepreneurs, it's like a sport. You know, it's like a challenge. There's like, there's real jeopardy. In totally. It. Like the stakes are high and there's a challenge and there's emotions. And then, and then when you win, it's like winning a tough sports game. It's exactly you know? like, anyways, I, I want to talk about this idea you talked about of looking around the corner. Um, You know, you, you think about, we got the, the recent downturn, but in the last two years, like there's been like record investments going into biotech and, and record numbers of IPOs. What do you think is driving those investments? That's a terrific question. So quite honestly, I think biotechs and life science invest benefited from covid not in the obvious way and what i mean by that the obvious way is oh you know we needed a vaccine everyone thinks right so that's why all the money went into life sciences really early on in the pandemic i was involved in like a round table of an investment bank and someone said life science is one of the only investable sectors right now and I asked what that meant. He said, look, you know, we put our money into retail, hospitality, property, you know, all these industries. And because of the uncertainty in the world, this was in kind of April, May of the pandemic in 2020. He said, look, tech, life sciences, pretty safe place to be right now. So I, my observation is the biotech market really benefited from that over the last two years. And the funding in 2021 was record, record levels. And, but arguably they were a bit artificially high because you were going through a period of time where it kind of went from that, like, so kind of like it might have been at 80% and it was at 100%. And actually, interesting enough, that market is that capital is drying at the minute. So 2022 has seen a drop 
versus 2021. And then you've obviously got the economic factors, what's happening in Europe. Is COVID going to be a thing this winter? You've got all these uncertain factors around inflation as well. And there's nervousness in the market. And I think as a result of that, funding in public biotech companies is, is starting to come down. And obviously then there's a bit of nervousness in the sector as a consequence. But if you actually step back and look at where the levels of funding are relative to the last 10 or 20 years, they're still crazy high. So it's a great place to be still, but, you know, looking at, you know, talking about looking around the corner, the sector has enjoyed a, a good 18 months, which sounds crazy given what's been happening in the world, but that's the reality of it. And it will have a wobble at some point in time. But what I would say about, say, life science and pharmaceutical generally, it's a pretty robust sector. I mean, I t you know, someone as simple as me. I remember when I decided to focus just on this sector and what went through my mind is people always get sick. People always need medicine. Like it was that basic. Like, you know, there's always going to need be a need for drug products and it's always evolving and it's never ending. And if you look at it, it's a very stable sector on the whole and it rides out recessions and busts and booms pretty well. It does catch a cold often a couple of years after. So I'm more worried about, I think it'll hit the life science sector in probably two or maybe three years time. I don't think it'll, it'll be a terrible year next year or, or anything like that. But yeah, but who knows at the minute, Jess, you know, I feel like we're all living in a slightly uncertain time, politically, economically, socially, like it's a, you know, just chatting to a friend on the phone earlier on today who's in Canada and he's like, thank God I don't live in the States, was what he said. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> and, but, you know, he was like, his perception of the US is one thing because of the way the media is portrayed. So I'm certainly very yeah. fortunate. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure everyone in the US says, yeah, you know, they turn about Canada. <laughs> well, that's funny. So I, I grew up in Canada. I'm a, technically, I'm an American born abroad because my dad's American. And, and then I got Canadian citizenship for being born there, right? And it's funny talking back home because you think about like the most left-wing news in the States, somebody like an MSNBC or something, right? And it's like almost all of the news in Canada is that far left or further. And so I'll talk to friends back home. I'll be like, oh, isn't it just so terrible, this and this and this? And you're like, oh, you've been watching the news a lot, huh? Like, <laughs> little, there's little, you know, there's little or a lot of exaggeration in that, like, our lives aren't actually like that. Okay. That's, that's the, you know, that's like, that's somebody trying to sell ads. <laughs> you know, yeah. Right. But I want to, I want to talk about this around the corner stuff. You know, you think about innovation in biotech. What do you, what do you think the biggest, I don't know, what, what biotech innovations do you think are going to have the biggest advancements and the biggest impact on the space over the next 10 or 20 years? Oh, that's a good, good, deep question. Uh, I think or one of them. What's one of them? So I think the, the, re the really hot area right now where a lot of development and a lot of resource investment is going into is the cell and gene therapy space. So I suppose this is, you know, and I purposely didn't focus on the mRNA vaccine, like, you know, what was used for some of the vaccines, because I think the cell and gene therapy area is particularly interesting because it's been coming through the academic part and the research part for the last few years. And we're now seeing real products of this nature coming onto the market. And what's quite interesting about these products is to an extent, the cure, the cure rather than treat. And that's a bit game changing. And I'll give you a kind of a personal story, which links to this. So one of the, the first products of this type that came on the market was a, a leukemia product to help kids with leukemia. 
And my, my brother's daughter had leukemia a few years ago. So we as a family went through that process and what, what was involved with that. And you, know, you can imagine pretty heartbreaking for a family, for anyone with children and all that kind of thing. Thanks, thankfully, my niece, you know, she recovered and was fine, but there was kids on the ward that weren't so lucky. And when this drug came out, it, you know, the first ever one in this space, it actually ended up in the hospital local to where I am today, in the ward where my niece was and treating kids. And, and weirdly, one of my clients was involved in the actual manufacturing of this product. So it's like, you know, sometimes in like your, your personal life and your business like collide in a, in a really beautiful way. But I was, what I was kind of seeing was, you know, the, the pharmaceutical and biotech space is quite a conservative long-term space in, in a lot of senses. Like it takes a long time to develop products on the whole. If you take COVID vaccines, it takes years and years to develop a product and bring it to market and get it into patients. And so we were hearing about selling gene therapy stuff, you know, a few years ago and watching it then come into patients, then be in the hospital where my niece was treated was an was an incredible thing and and that would that very much open the floodgates for these types of products and i'm hoping to see more of these types of products coming through the market at the minute a huge amount in the supply chain that we operate everyone's double downing on this space and actually they think that this is where it's going to be so you know at a very human level in 10 to 15 years time or 20 years whatever it would be great to see more of these products that are actually curing patients in a way that actually means that they don't have to have to go through treatment for two years, right? They can be treated. The challenge is the cost. The cost of developing these drugs is insane and the cost to actually treat these patients is insane. And that's that's a problem the pharmaceutical sector as a whole constantly has. Like, you know, it's expensive to develop products. They want to make their money back. They want to make profit. But then there's a scary dollar amount associated with that, which understandably patient advocacy groups are kind of like, that's crazy. Like, how is it $500,000 or whatever? So I think that it will continue to grapple, especially in the US. I mean, that's, it's probably more prevalent in the US than anywhere else. But that would be my take that in answer your question. I would love to see these products come to market in the next 15, 20 years because it'll benefit all of us. Yeah. For people not as familiar, like if you were dumbing it down for somebody dumb like me, what does cell therapy or gene therapy, what does it actually do? Like I can make these assumptions based on the name, but like what's like the briefest overview of what it's actually doing? So in my head, because I you know I'm not a technical scientist by any stretch of the imagination, effectively, you know, my observation of it is always around, you know, re- Often say with cancer, you have a replication of bad cells and the quality of the technology, it means that effectively you have replication of good cells, which kind of outbattle the bad cells, if you like. And that's kind of a very basic way that I think about these things, which are in the technology and the science behind them is just phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, in a lot of it, it's coming out of the States, actually, there's some amazing, amazing ways of actually thinking about this. And but what it's often the nature of it's done on a patient by patient basis. So you take samples of a patient's blood and the, the treatment is specific for that patient, right? So it's what you call a personalized medicine. It's effectively a medicine developed, you know, to an extent, not not generically like that, but to an extent a formulation, but it's actually a specific medicine for one patient. And that personalized medicine thing is it's so far from you know, you taking you taking some Advil today, for example, which anyone in the world could take, like it's the exact opposite of what the what the drug industry has actually built itself on and so that it's that type of thing where it is so specific to an individual and link closely to that if you look at the type of drugs coming through the market they're often they're often for rare diseases as well so it's diseases that have been underserved in the past because say there's there's only a thousand patients in the u.s that have a particular 
Like there's never been an incentive for companies to develop treatments for them because there's just not enough patients. But there's been some interesting work done in the last 15, 20 years around pathways of like to make it not quite to make it easier, but the, the, the timelines are shorter, the hurdles are slightly less and ultimately it gets the patients quicker. So I think we're on that, we're on that journey to get kind of more products of that nature to, you know, to the market, which again is exciting. It's an exciting time in life science right now. You know, the biotech sector is, you know, there's a whole load of good stuff that's going to come out of that space in the next 15, 20 years. It's in a really exciting place to be. Yeah. And then specifically, as you're thinking through innovations like that, what do you do to help the supply chain people get that gene therapy or that cell therapy client? How are you helping them message? Like what's, what's an insight that, that like, you know, a regular civilian or, or even just a regular marketing person who's not a specialist like you, what are they not saying to you? You know, what are they not helping your client say? And that's why their client isn't winning that kind of work. Yeah. So a lot of it is just marketing is a bit of an afterthought. So when we start engaging with clients, it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, we got some local agency do website and like, that's it. And you're like, right. No wonder, no wonder you have no inbound leads, right? Because no one can find you. And when they do, no one knows who that, what that you can do. And everything on the website is talking about yourself. So there is, I've seen this a million times, right? Where it's companies, you know, if you take the nature of a client of ours, which will be, you know, say a, a manufacturing company. Hey, we are in North Carolina. We do this, we do this, we do this, we do this, we do this. Nothing in there about, okay, I've thought about you as the customer. This is what your challenges and pains are. This is what you might be looking for. So a lot, a lot of it is an education with clients to say, look, when people first, they've got to find you. Let's make it as easy as possible for them to find you when they are looking, right? So again, you know, it'll be knowledge to your existing, but thinking about the buyer personas, who's involved in the decision-making, you know, it, it's not, it's never one person in business to business to business. And that's often a misconception where people are like, well, oh, it's just this one guy. Well, it's not that one guy because he needs to speak to his boss and he has to speak to procurement and there's a gatekeeper over there and his executive assistant might do his research. So trying to educate clients on some of that aspect, which is actually it's, it's a, a more complicated search, but actually when they find you, let's make it as easy as possible to, for them to understand what you do and to share that content with a colleague to, to get in touch with you and all that kind of stuff. And one of the crazy things I see is, is often and a brilliant inquiry comes through and then it just sits in someone's inbox for six months, like, like six weeks. Like, and that, that, you know, as an entrepreneur, that's like the worst case ever. It drives you absolutely. Because one of these inquiries, Jess, could be worth a million dollars, $5 million, $10 million. These are high value projects. And so again, you know, as, as customers, our expectations of customer service go higher and higher and higher. Because if I click on my phone now, I'll get a delivery from Amazon next tomorrow or wherever. And as a consequence of that, that bleeds into our, our date, our, our, our life, which is I expect things to be done a bit quicker. It's funny because at lunch before, I was, I was telling some of the story, you know, I, I bought a sofa recently and I went into the store and they were like in stock. So I was like, okay, great. I'll take the sofa. And they're like, oh, that's the show sofa. But it said in stock. So I assumed there would be one there. The guy was like, okay, yeah, I'll be delivered in 14 weeks. And I was like, 14 weeks. I mean, and, and then I stopped. I was like, am I a really... <laughs> am I an unreasonable customer? <laughs> and but my expectations are so high because I'm used to a certain level of delivery and standard. And go back to the point around part of our job is to educate clients on that, which is around making sure the differentiation is clear, making sure why you are better than your competitors. There is clearly an element where you have to present your technology, your capabilities, and all that kind of stuff. 
And part of the, we say to clients, make that as easy as possible to find on the website. If it's, if it's hidden seven pages down, like people are just so impatient, so, so impatient. And there's a great phrase from, I think Google, which is, you know, around say search engine optimization or what, you know, when your website appears, you know, be there, be quick, be meaningful. And that's often what it is. You know, if you, if you break it by then, just firstly, make sure you're there, make it as easy as possible and make sure it's relevant. And then the chances are you might get an inquiry still. Don't have answered, hopefully that answered your question. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and it's a good reminder. Like, I love how simply you put it because as you were talking about that stuff, I'm thinking like, you know, for our, for our adventure cabins, it's looking like we're just getting ready to launch it. I think the website's going to be, we bought the domain actioncabins.com. Okay. And I'm thinking like, we'll just show like this super artistic place that could like, you know, be in a design magazine or architecture magazine. And then with like crazy jumps. So it looks like you're going to like Woodward or the X games or, you know, like something like this. And like, that's enough. And it's funny, just as you're saying that, I thought, you know what? No, then I have to let them translate. How does this work for their family trip or their buddy's trip or girl's trip, right? Like, why aren't I like saying, you know, like I should just lead it with the questions that like you think, you know, in at least in America, moms book a lot yeah, of vacations. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. And so it's like, why aren't I interviewing a bunch of our action sports friends, families and saying, especially moms, but dads too, but especially moms are like, okay, what are you thinking about? What, what questions would you have about going here? And they're like, well, how far away is the grocery? store and what else can we do nearby there and like i should like literally frame like i should just as you're saying as you're talking to something i should just record their question and then write the answer like have that literally like a q a the name of that inbound marketing yeah, yeah, yeah. right and just like literally it's like that book they ask you answer by marcus sheridan but like as you're saying that it's like a reminder of like oh yeah because i just keep thinking oh we do this or we have this we have this we have this and that's almost there, but it's not really the finish line no. because then they still have to translate of how does that solve my problem? And we should just like, you know, don't make, you know, that internet marketing web design book, don't make me think the old one. Anyways, no, you're I'm like, right. oh yeah, dang it. Ramon's right. We should just like, we should just actually put on the question the way they're thinking of it. That's in, in, that's in my head, like the, the fundamental thing about marketing full stop is, is that ability to empathize with your customer and put yourself in their shoes and think about, and that's why customer insight is so important and it underpins a lot of work that we do saying like you a lot of assumptions are made well all our customers work like this and they do this and they do that and without any real it's often anecdotal and there's no data behind it there's no insight behind it so you know we often say to clients at the solar project look let us speak to half a dozen 12 15 20 of the customers and actually nine times out of ten there is it throws up some surprises because you know they'll often be like oh you know everyone comes to us because we've got x technology and actually it's often nothing to do with that it's often to do with well they actually it's because they've got a site in the us and europe oh okay that's why you're interested so i think careful not to use your assumptions when, when we're de when dealing with customers and take the time to speak to customers and you know in the consumer world this is what happens all the time but in the b2b world it's if for some reason seems less prevalent but yeah i'm sure it sounds like your yeah. cabins are going to be uh, very marketable anyway so <laughs> well you know we'd like to cut these episodes in half let's start with where can people find the company where people can connect with you online yeah so connect me online is the easiest thing is probably just go to my website which is romantagal.com so on there you'll find all the companies that i'm involved in in the book in the podcast and, and all that kind of stuff or Find me on LinkedIn. Again, just look for Romantic Al. There's only a few of us in the world. So yeah, feel free to connect with me there. Great. Well, everybody tune in for part two. We're going to be, I, I got a whole bunch of questions for Ramon about his new book. Ramon, will you, will you give us the, the quick overview on the book as a teaser? Get people yeah. tuned in for part two here. Yeah, sure. The book is called The Floundering Founder and it's, uh, it's made up of, you know, 24 
very short lessons because it's aimed at entrepreneurs, specifically entrepreneurs with service businesses that are feeling a bit stuck or in a rut or at a crossroads. And the aim of the book is to help them kind of navigate that juncture and help them hopefully get their business back on track, but also help them improve their life as well. Okay. Everybody tune back in for this. I'm going to be asking Ron for the best stories out of the book. Thanks for listening. Bye.